If you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, to chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32 is called what? It's called the Song of Moses. And God commanded everybody to sing this song for how long? Forever. It is prophetic all the way up to the end of time. And it's to remind everybody, the Jewish people and the world, that this world is under God's control. And God has told us what's going to be from the beginning until the very end. And every word God said will come to pass. Even those we don't want them to. Even if we wish they wouldn't, they're still going to come to pass. And Deuteronomy 32 is to remind everybody that Israel will be saved. But not until an awful lot of bad things have happened. So as we pick up in verse 28, it begins, For they, they does not refer to Israel. They refers to the enemies of Israel that will dominate Israel down through the ages. The northern kingdom of Israel was taken into the Assyrian captivity in 722 BCE. They have not yet come out of captivity. They don't come out until Messiah returns. What happened to Assyria? They were overthrown by Babylon. Babylon was overthrown by Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia was overthrown by Greece. Greece was overthrown by Rome. Let's read verse 28. For they are a nation void of counsel, nor is there any understanding in them. Do they understand when they took Israel captive, it was for the purpose of bringing God's judgment to bring the people to repent? No, they thought, look how mighty we are. Look how strong we are. Look how we defeated the people of the one they call the true and living God. How he wasn't able to defend them from my might and power. And their arrogance and their pride caused them to abuse the children of Israel. And look at what verse 39, 29 says. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this. Lord says, oh, I wish they had been wise enough to understand that I was trying to use them to call the world to repentance. Why was it that Babylon not only enslaves Judah, but the entire world? We're going to find out in Jeremiah's because the entire world had turned from God. The entire world had rejected God's commandments. And God was trying to bring the whole world to repentance. So he says, oh, that they were wise, that they understood this. That they would consider their latter end. Meaning if they only understood what judgments would fall upon them. Since they don't understand, since they will not turn to God, since they will not repent. So what happened to Syria? It was overthrown by Babylon. Babylon was overthrown. And is it only historical? No. In Revelation 15, they're still singing this song. What will happen to the battle of Gog and Magog when Gog tries to destroy Israel and drive it into the sea? Let's go look. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 38. Ezekiel chapter 38. I assure you in Gog and Russia, and Iran, and Syria, and Sudan, etc., come against Israel to destroy them, they think they're doing God a service. 
They think they're doing a good thing. Because what is the religion of all those nations? Islam. And what does Islam say? You must destroy the people of the book, by which they mean Jews and Christians. So once they destroy Israel, their intention is to enslave the world. What happens when they make their push to destroy Israel, to wipe them off the face of the earth? Look at Ezekiel 38 verse 18. And it will come to pass at the same time. What same time? In the day of the Lord, that thousand year period is just ahead of us. When Gog comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury will show in my face. Does that mean God's a little unhappy? No, it means he's really, really angry. For in my jealousy, why would he be jealous? Because who do Gog and Magog worship? Are they worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? No. They're worshiping a false god. For my jealousy and the fire of my wrath, what is fire in prophecy always? It's judgment. And the wrath of God is poured out in the tribulation period. Is it poured out on his children? Now, where does it say in the scripture, for we are not appointed under wrath? Is that in 1 Thessalonians? We'll find out after Deuteronomy, won't we? For in the, my jealousy and the fire of my wrath I have spoken, surely in that day, in that day refers to the day of the Lord. Like I said, a thousand year period, it begins with the rapture and the resurrection, then the seven year tribulation period, then the millennial kingdom, then the new heavens and the new earth comes at the end of it. Surely in that day there should be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. What does God mean by a great earthquake? A, a 5.0? 6 No, read it. So that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. How many of you have heard of earthquakes in California? You ever feel an earthquake that took place in California from here? Matthew's saying he has, but that's because he was there. I was there. I felt it. Our, our apartment building, I thought it was going to come apart. But I was there. But when you're here, you don't feel one in California, no matter how big it is. How big an earthquake does this have to be for all men on all the face of the earth to feel it and fear? <sighs> Off the scale. They're going to have to call a Richter Plus, right? <laughs> says, the mountains shall be thrown down, the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains. Those mountains are called the Golan. Who's on the other side of the Golan right now? Not just Syria, but Russia and Iran. The very peoples, even Sudan is starting to put troops in there. The very peoples, the Gog and Magogs, will, will be part of their invasion. I call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. The fog of war. The fog of war. How many of you out there served in the military? How do you know when you're flying a fighter airplane and another airplane's approaching, whether you should fire on it or not, is it friendly or is it not? There's a device on it called an IFF. It indicates friendly or foe. So when you turn on the targeting radar, if it's friendly, you've got a big red blob that comes up that says, don't shoot me, please. What happens if those stop working in the fog of war? 
when you have planes from Egypt, from Syria, from Turkey, from Russia. They're going to start killing each other. And that's what this says. Every man sword against his brother. They're going to kill each other because they're going to get confused in the fog of war. Who's going to make those IFF stop working, do you think? Yep, the Lord will. I bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him, on his troops, and on many peoples who are with him. Flooding rain, great hailstones, fire and brimstone. If it sounds like Sodom and Gomorrah, it should. Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of whom? Many nations. Many nations will repent when they see this. They will realize that there's a God in heaven, and it's not them. They've been worshiping the wrong God. They will come to realize the word of God is true. This is when Israel gets saved, but notice more than that. Isaiah tells us that Syria, Israel, and Egypt will be like one nation worshiping the Lord with one accord. Is that a big change from today? That's a big change. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. They here refers not just to Israel, but to many nations. Yes, ma'am. In the timeline, the best I can do is this is three years into the tribulation period. And yet we see the buildup again, don't we? Why do I think it's about three years in? Israel needs time once they come to the Lord here to learn the scriptures. Uh, five months later is when the abomination of desolation gets set up in the temple. And they run because Messiah said in Matthew 24, 15 to run when they see it. When they first get saved, do they know what the Bible said? It's going to take them some time to learn it. So I think they've got five months to sit down and say, what is it we've missed all these years? Hey, Wayne? Yes, ma'am. Is this, is, this, is this the exact time that they say Baruch, Abba, Shem, Adonai in Israel? It does not say that, no. It's got to take them a little bit of time. They don't even know what Matthew 23, 37 says at this point. It's going to take him some okay, time to study scripture and say, what's the Lord waiting on? Why did Daniel not pray his prayer of repentance until the end of the 70 years? It says in Daniel 9, he was reading through the scroll of Jeremiah and going, wait a minute, wait, wait, there's something we're supposed to do. But until he read the scroll and studied it, he didn't realize that. By the same token, when Israel gets saved, they don't become instant Bible scholars. Yes, Penny? Okay, is this where they, the 144,000 go out then to, to reap the harvest? No. The 144,000 go to Revelation chapter 7. The 144,000 are at the very beginning of the tribulation period. When you're turning to Revelation 7, stop at Revelation 4. <laughs> well, you got to go by 4 to get to 7, right? <laughs> Revelation 4, verse 1, God bless you, opens with the words, after these things, right? God bless you. Revelation chapters 4 and 5 describe what's going on in heaven from the time of the rapture to the start of the tribulation period. Revelation 7 begins with the words, after these things. It's going to describe what's going on on earth while the events of Revelation 4 and 5 are taking place in heaven. So there are two parallel timelines. 
Why didn't God just draw timelines all over the scripture? I don't know. I guess that's why he said study to show yourself approved. But verse 1 of Revelation 7 says, After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, meaning north, south, east, and west. Not that the earth is flat and square. That's not what it means. Although there's people who think it does. They're a little touched. <laughs> Holding the four winds of the earth. The winds refer to the wars. The wars are coming. But what does the tribulation period begin with? The time of false peace. They're holding back the armies. That the wind should not blow on the earth, that's Israel, on the sea, that's the Gentile nations, or on any tree. Trees represent kingdoms and kings. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. What's the seal of the living God? It's the Holy Spirit. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard, this is the 144,000. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. This is at the start of the seven-year tribulation. They spend the first seven years preaching in Israel, and then they go out to the rest of the world. Why, after about the first three and a half years, do they stop preaching in Israel and go out to the rest of the world? Because Israel has become saved. And now they go to share out the gospel with the rest. Starting in verse 9 of Revelation 7, it shows the results of the preaching of the 144,000. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands. These are the people that were not saved when the rapture took place in Revelation chapter 4. They've gotten saved since the tribulation period began by the preaching of the 144,000. Unfortunately, what does the false Messiah do to every believer he can get his hands on in the tribulation period? He kills them. So this is an innumerable number of people that have gotten saved during the tribulation period because of the preaching of 144,000. Can you imagine the power in the tribulation period? When you go to a city and say, how many of you lost all your children? Let me tell you where they went. Those who were saved, they're gone. Let me tell you where they went and why you didn't go. And what you need to do if you want to join them in eternity later and not burn forever and ever. You think people would oh, give them their attention? Yeah. yeah. Tell me what I did wrong. If you've seen the movie Left Behind, which is just Hollywood, but it does show that after the rapture, people want to know what? What happened? Where did they go? Why am I here? What did I do wrong? If you remember the movie, even the preacher in the church is there going, I taught it. I just didn't believe it. So that's where the 144,000 come in. And now they're still singing the song of Moses. There is still judgment to come upon the false Messiah and his leagues that are killing all the believers and attacking the saints. And that's in Revelation 19. All this is prophesied in the song of Moses. So the believers are multiplying hugely in the Yep, trying to kill them as quick as they can, but they're multiplying too fast. Praise the Lord. Mm -hmm. I wish all these people were saved before the rapture, 
Because to be a believer during the tribulation is going to be very, very hard. But what's that old expression, better late than never? Yeah. So Revelation 19, Messiah returns. What happens to those that have come against God's people? Verse 19. And I saw the beast, that's the false messiah, antichrist, or beast of Revelation 13. Take your pick. The kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Psalm 2 says they refuse to allow Messiah to return because they will not allow God to rule over them. Is God afraid? Oh no. Verse 20, then the beast was captured within the false prophet. He's also in Revelation chapter 13. Who works signs in his presence. What signs? Like even calling down fire from heaven. Makes the image of the beast speak, etc. Which he deceived those who received a mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. If they died in the battle, which they did, how were they cast alive into the lake of fire? They were resurrected, which means when they get cast in the lake of fire, they can't die. They're going to burn forever and ever and ever. How long do you think after they reach the lake of fire do they wish they had made different choices in their lifetimes? Immediately. Immediately. And what opportunity do they have to repent at that point? None. Your opportunity to get saved is in this lifetime. It's appointed a man wants to die and then the judgment. Verse 20, the rest were killed with the swords proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. So go back to Deuteronomy 32. This is what God means by verses 28 and 29. Wayne, you know, yes, sir? I think in, in Ezekiel uh, 39. Ezekiel 39. It said in uh, well, what, for, verse 12. Verse 12. It says, for seven months the house of Israel will be buried with <coughs> those that were killed. Right, those that are killing Balagog Gog and Magog, there's going to be so many it's going to take seven months to bury them. The travelers will be impeded because of all the dead. Yeah. You know. And that battle takes place on the Golan. And it says in Ezekiel 39, the birds will be eating their flesh off the bones. Where are all those carnivorous birds in Israel? They're at Mount Gamla in the in the Golan. What a coincidence, huh? Okay. So in Deuteronomy 32, verse 29, oh, that they would consider their latter end. If you are an enemy of God, what do you have to look forward to? That was Isaiah chapter 66. We looked at last night, but since not everybody was here, let's turn to Isaiah 66. It says exactly what happens to God's enemies. Who remain unrepentant. Isaiah 66.14 in the middle of the verse. Says the hand of the Lord. That's his protection and blessings. Shall be known to his servants. And his indignation to his enemies. That word indignation in Hebrew is za'am. Z-A apostrophe A-M. And it means God's wrath will be poured out on them. So God wishes in Deuteronomy 32 that they would have studied the scriptures, turned to God and repented, and not have to face up to his wrath, but will they? 
Answer is no. How do we know? Because the Bible says they won't. And every word God wrote will come to pass whether we want them to or not. So back to Deuteronomy 32. We're up to verse 30. Verse 30. Did we read from Ezekiel chapter 38 how Gog and Magog are destroyed? Are they destroyed by the huge army that Israel's able to put on the field? No. By the time we get to chapter 30, Israel is not a strong nation anymore. They've been through the Psalm 83 war. They've been through the judgments that have killed a quarter of mankind. All kinds of plagues have come upon them. So it says in verse 30, How could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight? So when Gog and Magog come with hundreds of thousands, if not millions of troops, how is it that the little force in Israel brings about this great devastation? The answer is they don't. It's God who does. So the answer to how could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight is that God is fighting on their behalf. And that's exactly what we see is going to happen. Unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had surrendered them. So the enemies of Israel were able to conquer Israel in the past because God allowed it. Instead of recognizing that and giving God the glory and repenting and turning to God, they said, look what we did. And when they get their pride and arrogance lifted up, then God's going to smack them down. Happened historically, like I said, when Assyria is overthrown by Babylon, Babylon by Medo-Persia, Medo-Persia by Greece, Greece by Rome. But in the future, in the tribulation period, it's going to be by the hand of God directly. So when it says rock, you see how it's capitalized? Biblical Hebrew doesn't have any capital letters. So this is the translator saying this rock is referring to God. Is God offended when you call him a rock? I mean, if I call you dumb as a bunch of rocks, you're not going to be thrilled with me, right? But that's not what it means. It means the rock upon which the house is built. So Israel's rock is the Lord, the Lord our God. Let's go look at some of those scriptures. Let's go to Psalm 18. Psalm 18. I like to chase words like that, the rock. Who is the rock? Because when it gives the other ways to describe the rock, it gives us a lot of insight into who the Lord is. Psalm 18, are we there? Verse 2. The Lord is my rock. Do you see how the word Lord is spelled? That's the tetragrammaton, those four Hebrew letters, yod heh vav that's our Messiah, Yeshua. Or Jesus, if you prefer. Yeshua is just the Hebrew name. And my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my strength in whom I will trust. So the Lord, who is my rock, is also God. My strength in whom I will trust. My shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold. 
Where have you seen that phrase, the horn of my salvation, before? Did you see it in the book of Luke, describing Messiah? Let's turn up and look at Luke and see. Some of you are looking at me like, I'm not sure. So let's go look at Luke. Chapter 1, verse 69. We'll start in 68, because that's the start of the prophecy given by Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. It tells us it's a prophecy given by the Holy Spirit. Luke 1, 68. Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. So who does this horn of salvation refer to? That's our Messiah Yeshua. There's no doubt. So does that mean that in Psalm 18 verse 2, our Messiah Yeshua is the Lord. He is my rock. He is my God. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation and my stronghold. The answer is yes. So let's go back to Psalm 18. Is Yeshua God? John 1.1, 1, 1, the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled amongst us. So if you're back to Psalm 18, where I should have told you to keep a finger, but I think I forgot. Look at verse 31. For who is God except the Lord? Meaning there is no other God except our Lord. And who is a rock except our God? Keep that verse in mind because we're about to talk about the rock of the Gentile nations. And it's not the Lord. In Psalm 18, let's look at verse 46. The Lord lives. How would you say that in Hebrew? Adonai Chai. The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. Again, it tells us the Lord is the rock. Let the God of my salvation be exalted. So the Lord is the rock, is the God of my salvation. Go to Psalm 28. But Wayne, isn't the Psalms just a songbook? No, they're all prophetic. Psalm 28, verse 1. This is a psalm of David. David was king of Israel, but he was also a prophet. To you I will cry, O Lord, my rock. Do not be silent to me. Lest if you are silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. So again, it reminds us that the Lord is the rock. Psalm 31, verses 2 and 3. Oops, I have a chat out here. Let's see if it's a question. I don't know when that came in. So we are in Psalm 31, verses 2 and 3. Again, it's a Psalm of David. It says, bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be my rock of refuge or strength. 
a fortress of defense to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. What's a fortress? We're talking about a military defense, one who defends us from our enemies. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Psalm 42. Psalm 42, verse 9. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemies? Again, who is the rock? God. Psalm 62. Wayne, are you building to a point? I hope so. Psalm 62. We're going to read verses 1 and 2, although you're going to see that verse 2 is the one that is the meat. But I just can't help thinking about this song, and you will too when we read it. Truly my soul waits for God. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. Can you hear the song in your head right now? So God is our rock and our only rock and our only salvation, our only defense. And so long as we're built on the rock, we shall not be moved. In the same psalm, Psalm 62, verses 6 and 7. Still referring to God. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. How many of you are thinking about a teaching that Messiah gave? About where you build your house? On the rock or on the sand? Where is that? Keep your finger in the Psalms and go to Matthew. And say, but Wayne, you always stop reading just before this. Well, today we won't stop reading. How many of you have heard me talk about Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23? Let's read verses 21 to 23 as soon as you get there. Don't let me go too fast. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, in what day? In the day of the Lord, on judgment day. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? They're trying to give these as proofs that they believed that they were saved. And does Lord say, oh, you're right, come on into the kingdom? He says, no. Then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. 
Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Those who live a lifestyle where they do not keep the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. The next verse begins with therefore, right? Here's the teaching about the rock. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Meaning, if you will listen to the Lord and keep the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God that we call the Torah, the Bible calls the law, then you're building your house on the rock. Who is the rock? Jesus. Uh-huh. You're building upon Jesus, upon Yeshua, upon God, upon the Lord, however you choose to phrase it. And the rain descended. That is, Satan will try and knock you off the rock. The floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house and it did not fall. For it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended. The floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell. And great was its fall. Now let me throw out the nickel question. Why do I say this is about whether you keep God's commandments or not? Where does this teaching begin? It doesn't begin in Matthew 7. It begins in Matthew 5. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. And if you go back to Matthew chapter 5... Starting in verse 17, this is where Messiah says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Plurosai, to fill full our understanding. To make us understand clearly what God requires of us. For as surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle, that's one letter or a smallest piece of a letter, will by no means pass from the Torah, from the law, from the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God until all is fulfilled, meaning until all prophecy has come to pass. Wait a minute, maybe all prophecy has been fulfilled. Maybe Messiah has caught away the believers and the tribulation period has come. He established his kingdom on earth. There's no more war. Praise the Lord. There's such peace and harmony. Even the animals are not dangerous. How many of you have a lion for a pet? Yeah, there's still lots of prophecy to be fulfilled. Verse 19, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whatever it does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. What is the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees based upon? They're keeping of man-made rules and regulations, not the commandments of God. And then what's he start doing from verse 21 on? He starts teaching the Torah, how to really understand it. You've heard it said means this is the way it's been taught. But let me fill up your understanding. Let me let you understand it better. So he says in verse 7, I'm sorry, in chapter 7, verse 25, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, he's talking about those who understand and keep the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. 
Let's go back to the Psalms now because we're not done with the cross-references to verse 30. The rock comes up over and over again. So let's go to Psalm 71. Psalm 71, verse 3. Be my strong refuge, to which I may give resort continually. You have given the commandment to save me, meaning to deliver me, for you are my rock and my fortress meaning the rock upon which I build and the protection from what Satan wants to do to me. What did Messiah teach us in what's called the Lord's Prayer, the Model Prayer? To what? Run through it in your mind. Acknowledge that God is the source. And pray, protect us from the evil one. So that is to be my fortress, my hedge of protection. Defend me from Satan. Are you strong enough to defend yourself from Satan? No. What's it say in the book of Jude? Even Michael the archangel was afraid to rebuke Lucifer and instead called upon God to rebuke him. Oh, when I hear people stand up and start rebuking Lucifer and binding him, etc., I fear for them. I fear That's for like it. The, the yeah, Gulliver. Gulliver's travels. Psalm 78. I haven't read the book, but I've seen the cartoon. <laughs> Psalm 78, verse 35. Then they remembered that God was their rock. And the Most High God, their Redeemer. Then they remembered. When does Israel come to remember? When they're in good times? Or when tribulation comes? Yipper. Psalm 89, verse 26. Psalm 89, verse 26. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Look at those words that are parallel. My father, my God, and the rock of my salvation, all referring to the same thing. What do we know Psalm 89 for? Verse 34, my covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. When you teach that God has set aside his commandments that they're not to be followed anymore, you call God a liar. That's not a good way to be. What does God say? My covenant I will not break nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. So which word did God teach us that we are free to ignore? None of them. Psalm 92. 
Wayne, did you write down every reference to a rock? The answer is no, I didn't. I picked and chosen. There's a lot of them. Psalm 92, verse 15. Psalm 92 is a song for the Sabbath day. Psalm 92, verse 15. To declare that the Lord is upright. What does upright mean? That he's righteous. That there's no sin in him. If you call him a liar, you're not calling him upright, are you? He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. So when God says, be ye holy for I am holy, you think he meant it? Where in the Old Testament does God say specifically, be ye holy for I am holy? That's in Leviticus 11, which says don't eat piggies, shrimps, lobsters. Where's in the New Testament? In 1 Peter. 1 Peter. When a rabbi, like Peter is, throws out a verse, what are you supposed to do? Put it in context. Psalm 94, verse 22. But the Lord has been my defense and my God, the rock of my refuge. Lord, defense, God and rock of my refuge are all one and the same. Psalm 95 1. There's just two more. Psalm 95 1. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. If you shout joyfully, that's called a teruah. What's the reference again? Psalm 95 verse 1. So sorry, the rest of us flipped a page, but your electronic Bible doesn't work that way, does it? you got to go, uh, pick, yeah, okay. What's the significance of that being a teruah? Is there a day in a calendar called Yom Teruah? Yes, that's the Feast of Trumpets. That's the day that signals the rapture and resurrection. So when we shout at the time of the rapture and resurrection, who are we shouting to? The Lord, the rock of our salvation. Did you build your house upon the rock? Lastly, Psalm 144. Psalm 144. which is a psalm of David. It's one that refers to the new song of Revelation chapter 5 that we will sing as we are raptured and resurrected into eternal glory. Psalm 144 verse 1, Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. How do we train for war against Satan and the principalities? we studying the word of God. That's right. So what about the argument people make? I don't need to read the Bible. The Holy Spirit will tell me anything I need to know. Are they going to be well armed for this conflict? Afraid not. 
Where's that reference to the new song? It's Psalm 144, verse 9. I'll sing a new song to you, O God. And that new song, the words of it, are in Revelation chapter 5, if you ever want to read them. You know, Wayne? Yes, ma'am. What you just said, that there are so many people that think they're Christians, they're not. Right. I mean, well, they think they are. They think they are. But because they're not studying the word, they're not learning what the... The enemy is not the enemy that they think it is, and so they don't have the weapons of their warfare to fight against the principalities and powers, and they don't real and they don't realize maybe that they're already losing the spiritual battle, right? And that judgment is already coming on them because they're losing their faith. And when the rapture comes and they're left behind, going, I, I don't understand. At least there's going to be the 144,000 to say, let me explain it to you where you went wrong. Okay, back to the word. I'm judging no one. Deuteronomy 32. That was verse 30, so let's do verse 31. Which I have put brackets around in my Bible because it's so important to me. For their rock is not like our rock. Their rock referring to those who are worshiping something other than God. Do you ever hear people say there is no idolatry in the world today? They are quite mistaken. There's plenty of idolatry left in the world today. It says even our enemies themselves being judges. So verse 32 through 35 is a group. For their vine, referring to Israel, who turned away from God and embraced the idols of the nations. For their vine is the vine of Sodom in the fields of Gomorrah. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? They were destroyed. God sent fire from them to destroy them. Why? Because of their sinfulness, their wickedness, but they weren't Jews. Does that mean the commandments of God applies to everyone, not just to Israel? Yes, it does. And when Israel acts like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, does God say, well, that's okay, I don't care? No, it means judgment's going to fall on them as well. God doesn't care who your parents are. He cares whether you're saved or not. The field, their grapes are grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. What this means is verses 32 to 35 talk about Israel will be judged harshly by their neighboring countries, those who enslave them and take them captive. Verse 33, their vine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of cobras. Why does Israel turn away from God and embrace the pagan idols of the nations? They got comfortable and forgot God. They look at it. They want to be like the other nations. That's why they call for a king to be like the other nations. But the other nations, they get to play with the prostitutes in the temples. They get to eat all kinds of unclean things. Can't we be like them? The answer is no. 
Where does the scripture say, come out and be ye separate? More than once. Can you name me one time? Revelation. Revelation. Let's turn up to Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17 is very insightful and it's why the Catholic Church teaches, oh, this isn't prophecy. But it is. Revelation chapter 17 talks about a false religious system. While you're turning there, let me take a moment and look at something here. Why are religious systems in the Bible all referred to as feminine? Because Adam allowed himself to be deceived by Eve. No, that's not why. I start a fight. Yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. Never mind. You've, you've persuaded me. I'm getting off this topic right now. So let's go back to Deuteronomy 32. We, we didn't need to go there. Okay. Oh, my goodness. Let me get out Bill's email address. So back to Deuteronomy 32, verse 34. Oh, want to know the efforts in Revelation 17 about come out and be separate? What's that, Rachel? I didn't hear. The scripture reference for Revelation 17, come out and be separate, is one another reference. Yeah, never mind. We're, we went back to Deuteronomy 32. We dropped that topic entirely. Okay. So verse 34. Is this not laid up in store with me, sealed up among my trees? Yes, on my back trails, I should just never chase. I'm sorry, where are we now? In Deuteronomy 32. Verse 34. Is this not laid up in store with me, sealed up among my treasures? Vengeance is mine. And recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time. Now we're back talking about the enemies of Israel. Those that took them captive. Those who lorded over them. Those who persecuted them through all these years. Remember in Revelation chapter 6. The souls under the throne are crying out. How long O Lord holy and true to you wreak vengeance on them. So God assures us in verse 35 that Babylon will get theirs, and they did. Medo-Persia would get theirs, and they did. Right on down the line. Vengeance is mine in recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time. Notice the word due is in italics, which means it's not in the original. But that's the meaning and the intent here is that just wait they will get theirs. Amen. Judgment day comes for whom? Everybody. Everybody. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things to come hasten upon them. For the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants. So when the time comes and God turns to deliver Israel, what happens to those that have been oppressing Israel? That's when they get theirs. 
when he sees that their power is gone, that is Israel's power, that they're no longer standing up in arrogance saying, we don't need God, we can do this on ourselves, and humble themselves before God, that's the time that deliverance comes. And there is no one remaining bond or free. Let's talk about God having compassion on his servants. See that phrase in verse 36? Compassion on his servants. Didn't we see those same things in Isaiah 66 a few minutes ago? Let's turn over there and look specifically at that half of the verse. Isaiah 66, 14. Isaiah 66 is about the second coming of the Lord for the battle of Armageddon. That which we read in Revelation chapter 19 about the enemies of the Lord being slaughtered at his return. But verse 14 is not just about the indignation to be poured on his enemies. But all of verse 14 says, when you see this, that is God defending Israel, your heart shall rejoice and your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord, his protection, his blessing shall be known to his servants and his indignation to his enemies. Same words we saw back in Deuteronomy 32 verse 36. The pillar of, you know, it was facing Israel, and then the fire that was, whichever way it was, you know, depending on. Pillar of fire to Israel, so they could see, but pillar of cloud to the Egyptian army, so they could not, so they couldn't attack. Yes, the defense. Um. So, in that verse thirty-six. In that verse thirty-six. Totally segmented from his servants. The servants are the true believers. Yes, right. he will judge his people. And the people are more like, you know, you were my chosen ones, but you haven't followed me, so you're like. The so they went into captivity. And so that is. And they suffered until they came to the point of repentance, and then they become his servants. So there's a process. Yeah, don't worry about the mailman. <laughs> you're right. So this Isaiah chapter 66, like I said, is about the second coming of the Lord. I've heard at least five different pastors, well-known, teaching on the internet this week, that says there is no rapture. That the church must suffer the wrath of God through the tribulation. They must take his wrath, his punishments, his judgments, and see if they can try and survive. Where's that in the Bible? Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I mentioned it a few minutes ago, but we didn't turn there. This time, let's go turn. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. Remember, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, there's the we, or you, and they. And in verse 9... It says, for God did not appoint us to wrath, 
but to obtain salvation through our Lord Yeshua the Messiah, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, that is, whether we're taken in the rapture or the resurrection, we should live together with him. Where in that verse do you see God appointed us to wrath? It's exactly the opposite. Is that the only time? No. But I'm off topic, so let's get back to Deuteronomy. I never go off topic. In that Deuteronomy 32, verse 36 reference, we need also go to Psalm 34 to help us understand it. Psalm 34. I'll admit honestly, we have lost people from the fellowship, people who stop studying because you flip all over the Bible and that irritates me. But the reason I do that is I want you to see with your own eyes and see this, how the scriptures tie together. Psalm 34 verse 22. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. Does anything in that verse say, yeah, but I'm going to throw my wrath on you and just squish you into the dirt? The answer is no. But does the Lord redeem the soul of his servants or his enemies? Servants. Do you see a theme that's developing across the scriptures? Psalm 135. She's okay. She's not bothering anybody. Hey, Sheila Grace, how you doing, dear? <laughs> Hello, dear. Psalm 130. She's adorable. She's not bothering anybody, Ellie. Nobody. She can come sit up here with me. It's okay. She can teach. Psalm 130. I wouldn't go that far yet. Okay. Give her a year or two. <laughs> Psalm 135. Verse 14. For the Lord will judge his people. Same words, right? His people. And he will have compassion on his servants. So he will judge his people to see who are the servants and who are the enemies. He makes a distinction. And which will suffer his wrath. Both? No. Does that go back to that was Psalm 144. I'm sorry. Wait, let, let, me, let me answer the reference first. It's Psalm 134. Uh, sorry, I got a little confused here. Psalm 135, verse 14. That's the one. And the other one before that was Psalm 34. Psalm 34.22, then Psalm 135.14. Yeah, there we go. Psalm 135.14. For the Lord will judge his people, will have compassion on his servants. There we go, that's the one. I should quit while I'm ahead, but I won't. Let's go to Isaiah 56. It should be comforting. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians Chapter 4 says, comfort one another with these words. 
How many of you would feel comfort if I said, you're going to have to go through seven years of the worst wrath of God that the world could ever see? Three quarters of the world's population will perish. Good luck. Does that comfort anybody? No. Isaiah chapter 56. Isaiah 56 talks about, what about the Gentiles? Can any of the Gentiles be saved? The answer is, of course. That's always been the plan. It's not an afterthought. Isaiah 56, verse 6, talks about which Gentiles are going to get to come into the kingdom. I see a number one out here. Let's see. Isaiah chapter 56, verse 6. Also the sons of the foreigner. The Hebrew word there is nakar. Somebody born in a non-Jewish nation of non-Jewish people who join themselves to the Lord to what? To serve him. That is, they've turned away from idols and they turn to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain. What's a mountain in prophecy? kingdom. So this is to the messianic kingdom. Which Gentiles will be welcomed to the kingdom? What does it say here? Who join themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. Even them I will bring to my holy mountain, make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, Yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. But Wayne, that's Old Testament. John 10.10 10 teaches the same thing. Let's go to John 10.10. 10. So why did the apostles, who were all Jewish, not want to take the gospel to the Gentiles, despite all this prophecy? They'd been taught that they were unclean and unworthy. Yeah, two words, peer pressure. What are my brothers and sisters going to think if I do that? Mm. Look at John chapter 10. We'll start in verse 10. Now I'll start in verse 14. I like it better. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. See that word known? Just make a note there, John 17, 3. John 17, 3. And then 1 John 2. Verses 3 through 6. And am known by my own. What does John 17, 3 say? What is eternal life? To know God. So verse 15 says, As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep, and other sheep I have, 
which are not of this fold. That's the Gentiles referred to in Isaiah 56. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Not two flocks. There's not a flock for saved Jews and one for saved Gentiles. One flock. One flock and one shepherd can go how many ways? One way. They walk the same path. Well, that gives us a choice. Do we all do as the church has taught for the last 2,000 years? We make the Jews into Gentiles and we all walk like Gentiles. If you remember the oath I sent out to you that Jews had to take to become part of the church, it was what? I renounce everything Jewish. I become Gentile. I will do everything like the Gentiles. But where, what in the scripture? Where, which scripture says, stop walking as the rest of the Gentiles walk? Where is that? Paul said it, you're right. Ephesians 4.17. Let's go to Ephesians 4.17. Yeah, hey, pick a book. He, he wrote them all. <laughs> Ephesians 4.17. This is important, but it's always overlooked. Always is an exaggeration, but not by much. Ephesians 4.17. Ephesians is right after Galatians. For this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Well, there's only two categories. So if you're going to stop walking like the Gentiles, you're going to look a lot like the Jewish people in their walk, right? The saved Gentiles and the saved Jews should walk the same way. And how's that? Verse 22 that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lust, meaning stop sinning, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Go ahead, Bill. Can that be linked with the scripture that says that a servant who knows the right thing to do, but he doesn't do it, going to be beat with many stripes, yep. but then the servant that doesn't know, I'm paraphrasing now, okay, this uh, gets beat less. It gets beat less. Yep. That goes back with, with people, with my people and my servants. Yeah, it does. But notice in verse 24, true righteousness, what's the opposite of righteousness? Lawlessness. Can we walk in lawlessness and be God's servants? The answer is no. Those are inconsistent. That's an oxymoron. Which is a moron you put to the wash with oxyclean? No, it's not. It just means it doesn't make sense. And holiness. What does the book of Hebrews tell us? Without holiness, no one will see God. Paul wrote this. Paul says, stop walking in sin like the Gentiles. Repent. And start keeping the commandments of God like the saved from the nation of Israel do. Like Paul does. How do we know that Paul believed in following the commandments of God? He said so. He said so in Acts chapter 24 verse 14. Let's go look. 
As his custom was. That's Acts chapter 17. But we're going to Acts 24. And then we'll follow up on Doc's comment. Acts 24, 14. These are Paul's own words. But this I confess to you that according to the way, which is what the believers were first called in Acts chapter 9, which they call a sect, meaning was just another sect of Judaism, like Pharisees or Sadducees. So I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. What portion of the Torah did Paul believe? All of it. All of it. Doc made reference to Acts chapter 17, verse 2. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the scriptures. And verse 1 tells us that's in the synagogue. He went to the synagogue on Shabbat. Yeah, every week. That's his custom. But didn't Messiah tell us to stop doing that? On the contrary. Go to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Verse 16. Messiah has been through the baptism. He's defeated Satan after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Verse 16 says, So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Now somebody show me a verse, any verse, where the Apostle Paul and the Gentiles meet on Sunday morning for church. Because there isn't one. Look at Matthew 4.4. 4. What did the Lord say? I like Paul okay, but I like the Lord more. Amen. Matthew 4.4. 4. When I see red words in the scripture, I know I can trust them. But he, that's Messiah Yeshua, our Messiah and Savior, answered and said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by a few of the words that proceed. No. But by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So I don't care how many pastors tell me, don't do what God said. I think God said, man said, who am I going to follow? I don't think about that for very long. Let's get back on. Yes, ma'am. But uh, Acts uh, 20, verse 7, and 1 Corinthians 16, 2 need to be fixed. Because they say the first day of the week, but we know the first day and week are in a talent. Let's go to Acts chapter 20, verse 7. 
Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Rachel's point is that if you have not fixed the wording in your Bibles yet, you ought to. And that's right. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. It says, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread. Aha! Sunday morning worship service. No, uh-uh. Those five words, first day of the week. How many of those five words are in the Greek? The answer is two. Of the. That's it. The Greek reads, Mia tone sabbaton, which says, now on one of the Sabbaths. Doesn't refer to the first day of the week at all. Mia tone sabbaton, on one of the Sabbaths. What one of the Sabbaths? If you look at verse 6, we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. After unleavened bread, you count what? Seven Sabbaths until Shavuot or Pentecost. So they're counting seven Sabbaths, and it says now on one of the Sabbaths. That's one of the seven between Passover and Pentecost. Same thing in Acts, in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Today is one of those Sabbaths. Yeah, could have been today. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also on the first day of the week. Let each one of you lay something aside. So put something in the offering plate. No. First day of the week, how many of those words are in the Greek? Of the. It says on one of the Sabbaths. We're still between Passover and Shavuot or Pentecost. So why is it on one of those seven Sabbaths that Paul wants them to lay something aside? Because when is Paul going to be back in Jerusalem? At Shavuot or Pentecost. So he's going to take whatever they have collected together and take it with them to Jerusalem when he goes. Hey, wait, what's the verse there for 1 Corinthians again? Chapter 16, verse 2. Right, because they don't want to correct this. They don't want to fix it. Everybody knows this wrong. If I say in English, one versus first, one is a cardinal number, one's an ordinal number. Same thing in Hebrew. What is the cardinal number for one? Echad. The ordinal number for one, first, is Rishon. Same in Greek. One is Mia. First is Protos or Proton, depending upon gender. Why is a proton in an atom called proton? Because it was the first nuclear particle that was discovered. So you can't look at this and say it's the first of anything. That's a ordinal number, and this is a cardinal number on one of these Sabbaths, and Sabbaths is plural. Okay, going back to our cross-references to verse, six, uh, verse 36 of Deuteronomy 32. You might think, didn't we finish those? No, not even close. Go to Daniel chapter 3. 
Daniel chapter 3. Yeah, we're still on Deuteronomy 32, verse 36. Just to remind us what verse 36 said is, For the Lord will judge his people in a compassion on his servants. When he sees that their power is gone and there's no one remaining bond or free. So when they put their faith in him, he will deliver them. Daniel 3.28, Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. Delivered his what? His servants who trusted him. What if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, Hey, I'm going to no fire. I'm going to eat the piggy. Bring me some pork. Would God have delivered them from the fire? No. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should nor, not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Daniel chapter 9, verse 10. This is part of Daniel's great prayer of confession on behalf of the nation. Why was Daniel qualified to pray a prayer of repentance on behalf of the nation? He was royalty. He's part of the royal family. And Daniel chapter 9 verse 10 says, We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. So the prophets were the servants of God. They delivered the message of repentance and obedience to God. And the people said, nah, we'll walk in our sins instead. So who did God pour his wrath on? The prophets or the people? The people. Amos chapter 3. Yeah, but not by God. That was by the sinners. Those who said, stop telling me to repent. I don't want to. Amos chapter 3, verse 7. I love this verse. I got to have Becky put this verse on a t-shirt. Surely... Does surely mean this is questionable? No. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophet. So again, his servants are blessed of God and the prophets are his servants. What's more important to this is if God was going to say, stop keeping the Sabbath and do Sunday instead. This says there would be a prophecy in the Old Testament that says, the Sabbath is temporary and will be replaced one of these days by Sunday. Is there such a prophecy? No, no but there's one close to it. Daniel 7.25, this says the Antichrist, 
is going to try to change it. Now tell me, does the Antichrist try and make us um, keep God's word? Be obedient to God or to take us away from obedience? So how many of you think Messiah would come and do the same things the Antichrist is supposed to do? Nope. There's a video on YouTube right now by a Jewish rabbi, it's only about a minute and a half long, that says, do you guys know what the origin of Christianity is? And the audience is going, no, no, we didn't, what is that? He says, of course you know what Christianity is. Christianity arose among the Jews long ago. Where somebody came into the Jews and said, Oh, you guys have to keep the commandments of God and you can't eat pigs, all that. Well, I'm here to tell you, you can be saved and worship the God of Israel and not follow any of his commandments. And that's his understanding of Christianity because that's what he's been taught. That's what he sees. That's what he sees. Hasn't been long since a pastor sat me down in a restaurant. I was sitting there, he said, can I eat with you? And he wanted to know, why won't the Jews accept Jesus? <laughs> the honest and most direct answer is because you teach them not to. Do you think that causes great offense to the pastors yet? What do you mean? You teach them that when you come and get saved, then God's commandments don't matter anymore. Do you know you're talking to people who went into captivity for thousands of years for breaking God's commandments? And you're telling them that's what God wants? Think about that for a minute. God said, my covenant I will not break nor alter the word that has gone out of my mouth and you're telling them God's a liar. You just finished your Easter season and taught him that Jesus was crucified on Friday and rose on Sunday. How many nights are there between Friday and Sunday? Two. Messiah said he'd be in the grave three days and three nights. You just taught the Messiah is a false prophet and a liar. And you expect them to say, oh great, let him be my Messiah. So the church needs to do a better job of teaching the word of God. I digress. Go to Revelation chapter 1. Even I'm wondering why I would do that, but let's go to Revelation 1 and see. Revelation chapter 1. your socks on because this may not come off. The revelation of Yeshua the Messiah which God gave him to show his servants. Not his enemies. Who were the promises of deliverance in Revelation 4? His servants. Go to Revelation chapter 19.
Revelation chapter 19. The key verse is 2, but we'll start in 1. After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying. What's that word saying mean? Well, follows is a quote, so what's the original language here? Hebrew. Saying, Alleluia. Is that a Greek word? No, that's a Hebrew word that's transliterated. What does hallelujah mean? It means praise the Lord. They could have just said praise the Lord, but they didn't. They transliterated the Hebrew. Salvation and honor and glory and power belong to the Lord our God. For, what's for mean? Because true and righteous are his judgments. Because he has judged the great harlot, that's Revelation 17, that's the false church, who corrupted the earth with her fornication and has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. The false religious system has always been trying to kill the servants of God. It's not just in the tribulation period. What was the Inquisition for almost 2,000 years? Over 1,000 years, it was to kill the servants of God. If you kept the Sabbath, the Inquisition put you to death. If you wouldn't eat pork, the Inquisition put you to death. So you didn't know that. If you read the Bible, the Inquisition would put you to death. Because if you read the Bible, you realize that the Catholic Church is not true. And the Inquisition was an instrument of the Catholic Church to try and weed out people who want to follow God. Hmm. Revelation 19, verse 5. Messiah returns in chapter 19. This is an important chapter. Verse 5 says, Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants. And those who fear him, both small and great. You're his servant, or you're his enemy. Praise God, are you his servants. Chapter 22, verse 3. There's just two more. Revelation 22, verse 3. This is the new Jerusalem. This is the eternal kingdom. Anyone in the New Jerusalem is not in the lake of fire. Verse 3 says, And there shall be no more curse. What is the curse? The wages of sin is death. There's no more death because there's no more sin. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. Who's going to be in the New Jerusalem? His servants. One more, and that's in verse 6 of Revelation 22. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angels to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. So Revelation is to God's servants to let them know what they're not going to have to suffer. That they are not appointed unto wrath.
Brother Wayne, what was that last verse reference? Revelation 22, verse 6. Thank you. You're welcome. Huh. Do these verses about the servants make you think of Malachi at all? You're going to turn to Malachi and look. Okay, everybody turn to Malachi. Malachi, my messenger or my angel is what Malachi means. It's the last book in the Old Testament before you get to Matthew. Zechariah Malachi, chapter 1, verse 6. Malachi, chapter 1, verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts. The problem is the people were calling themselves, we're the children of God. He says, if you're my child, where's my honor? We're servants of the true and living God. If you're servant... Where's my reverence? Does this remind you of something the Lord said in Luke chapter 6? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? That's Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Turn to it. Put your eyes on it. Put it on a t-shirt. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? So we looked at scriptures from the Old Testament all the way to the end of the New Testament. And it keeps making reference to God's what? Servants. So back to Deuteronomy 32. Verses 37 and 38 go together. Remember, this is still the song of Moses, which is to be sung forever and ever. Verses 37 and 38. He will say, where are their gods? And the rock in which they sought refuge. Who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering. Let them rise and help you and be your refuge. So this is God talking to Israel and the nations. You say Moloch is your God? Fine. What's he going to do for you? Is he going to be your help? Is he going to be your deliverer? Is he going to be your refuge? No, he's going to be a stick or a rock or a piece of metal. So where are your false gods now? I can't help but think of the ancient northern kingdom of Israel. 
God would bless them and the crops would come in. They would have a bountiful harvest and they would go sacrifice to Baal and Ishtar and thank them for the crops. In 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah comes along and says, Come on, people. Let's have a contest. Bring all your hundreds of prophets and let them call out to Baal and Ishtar and see what happens. And what happened? Not a thing. And Elijah said, okay, God, now, and fire comes from heaven and, de- and envelops and takes away his sacrifice, the altar, and even the water that he had the pagans pour on it. What was his point? Is there any doubt about who is God and who's not? Is there anybody in here who's confused about who's God and who's not? God says in Isaiah that only I can tell you the end from the beginning. And that's why he lays out prophecy that covers 3,000 years in the book of Isaiah. So that you and I can sit here today and look at what's happening in Syria across the Golan border and say, well, God wrote about that 3,600 years ago or 2,600 or however long ago it was. What was it about? 2,600 years? Give or take. It's happening today. Can I tell you what's going to happen on Tuesday? No. Even the weatherman can't. (laughs) I grew up in northern Ohio. It was so funny. The radio stations were all indoors with no windows. And it'd be just pouring to beat the band. And they'd be saying, it's going to be a bright and sunny day today. Not a chance of rain. And you go, well, you're inside, aren't you? (laughs) It's not raining in there. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 44. In Isaiah chapter 44, God lets us know just how foolish idolatry is. Isaiah chapter 44, verses 9 to 20. Let me give you a chance to get there. Those who make an image, talking about an idol, all of them are useless. Does it mean the idols are their makers? The answer is yes, both. And their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they should be ashamed. Does that make you think of the story from the Talmud about Abraham? Abraham's father was the village idol maker. And they say, I don't know if it's true or not, but they say his father was gone one day and Abraham took a big stick and just smashed all the idols except one and put the stick in the hand of that idol. And when his father came back and said, what have you done? He said, not me, he did it. (laughs) His father said, he can't do that, he can't do anything. He's just a piece of metal. And Abraham said, then why are you worshiping him? Yeah, okay. I don't know if it's a true story or not, but it's a good one anyway. Verse 10, Isaiah 44, 10. Who would form a God or mold an image that profits him nothing? If you can make this idol and it brought you all kinds of wealth and power and glory, that's one thing, but it doesn't do anything. To move it from one place to another, you've got to pick it up and carry it. 
Verse 11, surely all his companions would be ashamed. And the workmen, their mere men, let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up, yet they shall fear, they shall be ashamed together. The blacksmith with the tongs works one in the coals, fashions it with hammers, and works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he's hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. Why didn't the idol give him food and water so he could be strong and continue? That's the Lord's point. He's coming to it. The craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks out one with the chalk. He fashions it with a plane. He marks it out with a compass and makes it like the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. He cuts down cedars for himself and takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for a man to burn. For he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes the God and worships it. He carves it to a carved image and falls down to it. If you don't understand, this is the same tree. He cuts down the tree, uses part of it to make a fire to warm himself and to cook his food, and then worships the other half. Uh, uh. Verse 16. He burns half of it in the fire. With this half he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. Even warms himself and says, I'm warm, I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god. His carved image. He falls down before it and worships it, prays to it and says, Deliver me for you are my God. They do not know nor understand. For he has shut their eyes so they cannot see in their hearts so they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart. There is no knowledge nor understanding to say, I burned half of it in the fire. Yes, they've also baked bread in its coals. I've roasted meat and eaten it. Shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. The deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember the warning of Romans chapter 1. comes to a point where God will give you over to a debased mind. And you don't even see how stupid the things you're doing are. Are we? We are definitely witnessing that. Back to Deuteronomy 32. We're almost done. Just a few more minutes. Verse 39. The last verse was Isaiah chapter 44, verses 9 to 20. And that was to comment on Deuteronomy 32, verses 37 to 38. Where God says, call upon your idols. Ask them to do something for you. What are they going to do? Not a blooming thing. Mm -hmm. Verse 39. Now see that I, even I, am he. And there is no God besides me. There is no other. In Hebrew you say, ain owed. Everybody say that. Ain owed. There is no other. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Wait a minute. 
I kill and make alive. Can God resurrect the dead? Yes. You betcha. I wound and I heal, nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. We've got a lot of commons to look at. Let's go back to Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44. Verses 6 through 8. Got to understand this, people. You got to. Isaiah 44, verses 6 to 8. Thus says the Lord, that's the tetragrammaton, those four Hebrew letters, yod heh vav The king of Israel. Who is the king of Israel? Do you know? Jesus. Yes, it's Jesus. It's our Messiah, Yeshua. Thus says the Lord, the king of Israel, and his redeemer, the Lord of hosts, Adonai Zavaot, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last. Messiah quoted that in Revelation chapter 22, remember. Besides me, there is no God. The traditional church says we are a cult. And one reason is because we don't teach that there are three gods. There is no trinity of gods. There's a triunity. There's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But that's the three different ways in which God interacts with us. Trinity means there are three co-equal, co-existent gods standing around a fire trying to make decisions, arguing over what should be done. This says, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. There is no other. And who can proclaim as I do? In other words, who can prophesy like the Lord? How many prophecies are there in the Quran? Zero. In the writings of Buddha, zero. Let him declare it and set an order for me, since I appoint the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come. In other words, I've told you from the beginning all the way to the end, the new heavens and new earth, I've told you all that. What have your idols told you? Nothing. Let them show these to them. Do not fear nor be afraid, for have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. What does he mean there is no other rock? Is there any other place to build your foundation than on our Messiah Yeshua? What's 1 Corinthians chapter 3 say? Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. First Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 11. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is our Messiah, Yeshua. If you build your house on any other rock, you built it on sand. 
No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is our Messiah, Yeshua. Is there another foundation? Ain owed. Go to Isaiah chapter 45 as we're down to our last 30 seconds. Isaiah chapter 45. We've got two verses to look at here and then we'll stop till next week. Isaiah chapter 45 verse 5. I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Why do you think God keeps saying, and there is no other? Because there is no other. Same chapter, verse 21. Tell and bring forth your case. This is a legal challenge. Take me to court. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no other God besides me. A just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. And with that, we've run out of time. We have to pick up next week, Lord willing, talking about Deuteronomy 32, verse 39, and the comments on it. And, and maybe we won't finish Deuteronomy today. But okay, maybe next time. <laughs>